Our sermon text this morning is found in Genesis 6, the first portion of that chapter, verses 1 to 13. It's printed for you on the back of your order of worship if you'd like to read along or follow along there. I encourage you to listen now again once more to God's holy and inerrant word. It is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. It is sweeter also than honey, sweeter than the drippings of the honeycomb. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then Yahweh said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And Yahweh regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So Yahweh said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Thus far, the reading of God's word, it is absolutely true, and it is given to you because your Father in heaven loves you. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, you've caused all the holy scriptures to be written for our learning. And we ask now that by your Spirit, you would enable us to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this portion of your Holy Word, that we might even more hold fast to that blessed hope of everlasting life. 
that you have given us in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. For the next several weeks to come, we'll be looking at the story that's introduced today, the story of the great flood and the ark of Noah as we move through Genesis chapters 6 through 9. The next four chapters have to do all with this story, with its beginning, with its middle, with its climax, with its aftermath. This story of the flood and of Noah is, of course, one of the most well-known stories in all of the scriptures. If you ask a person on the street who was Noah, they probably still know. They probably have heard that story about the flood and the ark and the animals, etc. I do think it's interesting, though, what we tend to emphasize as modern people when we imagine this story. If I say Noah's ark, what do we think of? I think most of us probably imagine some kind of illustration of that ark meant for children. Noah standing on the deck of the ark with an olive branch and a dove in his hand, right? The giraffes are there usually, right? Their, their necks are too tall and sort of sticking out of the window of the ark, right? It's almost lighthearted, right? These illustrations we make of this ark. It's a fun story for children. The Presbyterian minister Frederick Beekner writes this. He says, It is an ironic fact that this ancient story about Noah survives in our age mainly as a children's story. When I was a child, he says, I had a Noah's Ark made of wood with a roof that came off so that you could take the animals out and put them in again. And my children have one too. Yet, he says, if you stop to look at it at all, This is really as dark a tale as there is in the Bible, which is full of dark tales. It is a tale of God's terrible despair over the human race and his decision to visit them with a great flood that would destroy them all except for this one man, Noah, and his family. And now we give it to children to read. One wonders why, Beekner says. Not, he says, I suspect, because children particularly want to read it, but more because their elders particularly do not want to read it, or at least do not want to read it for what it actually says, and so make it instead into a kind of fairy tale, which no one has to take seriously. I think Beekner's on to something there in terms of the way the story is treated by us as modern people. This story of the great flood in Noah's Ark is indeed one of the darkest and most difficult stories in the Bible because ultimately this is a story about God's terrible judgment on the wickedness and the wicked of the human race. It's horrifying. When you think about it, so many people dying, dying by drowning, dying suddenly and unexpectedly. But this story is not, of course, just a story of judgment. It's also a story about how God brings the salvation of his people 
through his judgment, through the judgment of the wicked. And if you stop to think about it for a few minutes, this theme of God bringing about the salvation of his people through the judgment of the wicked is actually one of the most prominent themes in all of the scriptures. We'll see this pattern repeated again and again. When God saves his people from their slavery in the Exodus, how does he do it? By bringing judgment on the wickedness of Egypt. And fascinatingly, in that story, he does it in almost the same way. He leads them through the waters and drowns the wicked in the flood. When God brings his people into the promised land, how does he do it? He does it through his judgment of the wickedness of the Canaanites and of the people of the land. When God places David on the throne to rule as Israel's messianic king, the foreshadowing of the son who would come, how does he do it? He does it by bringing about judgment on the wickedness of Saul and of his house and of those who followed him as they perish fighting the Philistines. When God saves a remnant of his people who he will keep for himself, who will flourish in exile and in one day return, men like Daniel and Ezekiel and Esther and their descendants, how does he do it? He does so by bringing judgment. The armies of Babylon come and destroy Jerusalem and the wicked who remain there. And then, of course, in the death of Jesus, God saves his people. How? By giving up his son over to judgment on their behalf. However, not even the death of Jesus brings out an, event, an end rather, to this pattern, this theme of God bringing salvation through his judgment. God saves, as we were heard this morning, Jesus predicting, the early church from the persecution and the violence of the apostate Jews and especially the Jewish leaders by bringing judgment again on the wickedness of Jerusalem, destroying the temple again for a second time and thereby saving his people as he judges the wicked and their sin and their evil. And we look forward now to this blessed hope, friend, to the last day when God will do this once again, when he will bring about the final and ultimate salvation of the righteous. How? By sending his son to judge the wicked for eternity. To judge evil, to judge Satan and all his demonic horde. God's judgment is all over the place in the story of God's redemption. And this story, this story here at the beginning of the scriptures, this story of the great flood and Noah's ark is the first great judgment of the wicked that takes place in all of the scriptures. And as such, this story of the flood sets the paradigm, the pattern for all the judgments of God that will follow. In other words, we learn here in the story of Noah's Ark certain principles and themes about how God brings judgment against the wicked, against evil, against sin, that will help us to rightly understand 
all the rest of the times that God will do this in the story of redemption. Not only in the scriptures, but actually also in our world today. This text is given to us so that we might be wise. So that we might know that God judges and how what happens when he judges. Why does he do it? What is he up to? What is the outcome? So as we look at this story of the great flood in Noah's Ark in the weeks to come, at least the next three weeks, we'll focus on three themes that I think are always found in God's judgment. First, as we'll discuss this morning, this portion of Genesis 6 shows us that God will always judge evil. It may be slow, it may not be immediate, but this story is given to us that we might be confident that God judges all evil. None of it is left outside of his judgment. Next week, as we look at the remainder of Genesis 6, we'll consider how God's judgment of evil always includes mercy. In this case, the ark that is being built. God's judgment always, always, friends, includes a way of escape, a way for those who are to be judged, to repent, to be saved, to be delivered from that judgment that is coming. And then two weeks from now, on March 19th, we'll look at Genesis chapter 7 and consider this Fascinating aspect of God's judgment, how God's judgments in history always bring about a new and transformed world. Things are never the same after God comes in judgment. Indeed, the judgment of the wicked is how God is always moving history forward into new places, new and greater places of maturity and glory. And we'll see that in the story of Noah and this flood. But today we'll consider how our passage this morning teaches us that God will always, always judge evil. Remember in Genesis 4 we read about the wicked line of Cain which begins with Cain's murder of Abel and then his lack of repentance, his building of the city of Enoch, the city where hatred of God is a way of life. And a way of life that culminates in his descendant Lamech, who is boasting openly of his murder and revenge and violence. Then in Genesis 5, we read about the righteous line of Seth, where the Lord is preserving his church. He's protecting the right worship of God. We see that culminating in the line and birth of Noah, a righteous man. But the story of Genesis 6, I think, brings these lines together. It begins with the description of how the wickedness of Cain's line corrupted the descendants of Seth until the whole earth was filled with violence and evil. In the first five verses of Genesis 6, we read this. The Lord says, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. And then Yahweh said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, 
and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now I'll be the first to acknowledge that this is a complex and confusing set of verses. A minority of biblical interpreters have argued that the sons of God here, as they've tried to make sense of this passage, are angels. You may have heard this idea, this theory. The sons of God here, the theory goes, are angels that have come to earth and then take human wives and have children with them. And it is this intermingling of the angelic and human races that is the great sin of Genesis 6, which leads to the corruption of the earth and God's judgment of the human race. However, you may have heard that, but however, I believe that reading of this text is wrong, that it's exegetically incorrect for a number of reasons, but at least two, which I'll try to explain briefly this morning. The first reason I believe this interpretation is wrong, is incorrect, is misguided, is because the scriptures are clear elsewhere that angels are spiritual and not physical beings. God did not create angels, friends, with physical bodies. And there's nothing in the scriptures that give us any evidence that angels somehow have the capacity to have sexual relations with one another. Actually, Jesus strongly implies that they don't explicitly much less with human beings. There's no reason in the scriptures to think that that's true. And for my money, this alone is sufficient as a reason to reject this reading of the text. It fundamentally misunderstands what angels are, what they're capable of. But another reason points, I think, in the direction of rejecting that reading as well. And that is this, if it is the angels who initiate this great sin, if they're the ones who go after the daughters of men and take them as wives and produce offspring, then why is there no record of the t- in this text of God judging or even mentioning the sin of these terrible angels that have done this wicked thing? Rather, what is the emphasis in this text? The emphasis again and again throughout this text is on the God's anger about the corruption and wickedness of humanity of mankind, not the wickedness of angels. Friends, this text, I'm confident, is not about angelic sin. It is about the sin of human beings made in God's image. Indeed, I think there's another reading of this text that has been held by the majority of interpreters throughout the ages that makes a great deal more sense. And that is that the sons of God mentioned here as the line of the righteous, are the descendants of Seth, while the daughters of men are the descendants of Cain, the line of the wicked. And therefore, the error that is being committed here is not that of angelic beings intermarrying with human beings, but rather men departing from the righteous line of Seth and intermarrying the line of Cain, leaving, so to speak, the city of Seth and going to the city of Cain, and adopting those practices, that way of living, that path of violence. This reading is also supported in that it provides an explanation for how the violence and evil of Cain's line, which is so clearly evident in Genesis 4, spreads throughout the whole earth. 
Friends, it happened over time. Not all at once, but slowly, as each generation became more and more corrupted than the one before it. Remember, at this point in human history also, men and women were living often as long as 800 or 900 years, which is almost impossible for us to imagine. And for people who rejected God and then lived for almost a millennia, their wickedness had the potential to affect and influence and harm others exponentially more than they would if they had only lived what we consider a normal lifespan today. In fact, you might argue that one of the reasons that God shortened the lifespans of human beings after the flood, which we can see takes place, though God never explicitly explains it, was for this purpose, for the purpose of restraining evil and corruption, so that evil and corruption would not spread in the same way as it did before the flood. In any case, however you interpret the first two verses of Genesis 6, in verses 5 to 13, we read of the effects of this mingling, this intermarriage between the sons of God and the daughters of men. And that's where I want to spend the rest of our time this morning. We read here, Yahweh saw, in verse 5, that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil, continually. The Lord draws near. He sees the wickedness is everywhere. And the Lord, that is Yahweh, regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So Yahweh said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. Skipping down to verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. You can see the connection there, right? The violence at the end of chapter 4 and the line of Cain and how that violence is now spread over all the earth. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted the way on the earth. And God said to Noah, he announces his judgment. He says, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Notice again the repetition of that crime, that sin. Cain's murder of Abel, we might say, has now spread to all of humanity. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. What this portion of God's word is telling us, beloved, is essentially this. God is drawing near to the earth. He's evaluating it, and he finds finds that it is evil. God determines that humanity at this point in its history was evil and wicked and full of violence. And because of that evil, God now determines to bring judgment. Now that judgment did not come immediately, it doesn't seem. It took at least as many years as it took for Noah to build a massive ark, which we'll talk about in a lot more detail next week. And actually, I believe that the 120 years that are referenced in verse 3 are a reference to the amount of time that the Lord intends to pass between when he speaks to Noah 
and announces his decision to judge the earth and then when the floodwaters finally came. But no matter how long it took for the Lord to execute this judgment, make no mistake, what we read in the chapters to come is that God drew near the earth, he found that it was evil, and he responded to that evil by destroying all of humanity, save for one righteous man and his family. And because of this story, because of this dark and terrible judgment of God in the early days of human history that resulted in the loss of so much human life, we can be confident of this, beloved. We can be confident that the God who made heaven and earth is also the God who will judge evil always. Always. Our God is, as our confession puts it, the God who is not only most loving and gracious and merciful and long-suffering, he is also the God who is most just and terrible in his judgments. The God who hates all sin. The God who will by no means clear the guilty. Beloved, our God will judge evil always. That's what this story teaches us. That's what the story gives us confidence about. All of it. All the evil that has ever been done by the human race. Every wrong. Every violation of God's law. Every act of injustice. Every deed of violence. Every abuse. Every theft every murder, every adultery, every lie, every act of covetousness, every idolatry. The God that is revealed to us in the scriptures, that is revealed to us here in Genesis 6, is the God who will in his good time judge all of those things. All of it. Now make no mistake, for those who put their trust in the mercy of God, there is a way of escape. Those who repent and put their faith in the Lord Jesus will be able to stand without shame in the judgment of God. For Jesus has borne their judgment on their behalf. But this is important, friends. The salvation that is brought to us in the cross only makes any sense at all in the context of a God who judges evil, who always judges evil, without exception, who hates all of it. If God does not judge evil, then what is the point of the cross at all? What's it for? What does salvation even mean if it does not mean deliverance from the reign of evil? And indeed, the story of the great flood teaches us, thanks be to God, that our God does not overlook evil. He doesn't just, you know, sort of shake his head and say, you know, those human beings, they're up to it again. No. He judges it. He sees it. He calls it to account, all of it. 
And friends, this is profoundly good news because we need the justice and judgment of God to deliver us from the oppressive reign of evil. We need to be delivered and healed from the sins that we have committed. We need to be delivered and healed also from the sins that others have committed against us. And the only way that this can happen, the only way is if someone outside of it all, someone who is not part of the whole corrupt system that we are all trapped in, draws near and sees the evil that has been done. He sees all of it and then refuses to let it stand. In other words, we need, friends, not only our Lord Jesus and his death on the cross, we need also our Lord Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. And we need our Lord Jesus also in his promise that he will come in that same risen and glorified body, just as the Lord comes here in Genesis 6 to inspect to evaluate and to judge all the living and all the dead and deal with wickedness and sin and evil once and for all. We need this aspect of the character of God, which is to say that we need to remember and hold fast to this vision of our Lord Jesus that John spoke of in Revelation, right? When he wrote these words, he said, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in his righteousness he judges and makes war. This is the same God who came to judge the earth in the flood. John says his eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, this is the same God who judges the world in the flood. And the armies of heaven follows after him, arrayed in fine linen, following on white horses, and from his mouth, John says, comes a sharp sword, And what is that sword for? To strike down the nations and rule them with a rod of iron. And then John says this about our Lord Jesus. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, John says, He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We need this God. This is the God we need. We need the God who will always judge evil and ultimately will put a complete end to the wickedness of humanity. And beloved, the good news is that this is precisely who our God is. He is faithful and true. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom as we contemplate these difficult things, as we consider carefully your judgment and history and this story and how it applies to our lives today, not only this morning, but in the weeks to come. We pray it for this mercy and grace in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.